Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of this chapter together this morning. We'll probably go ahead and finish it out next week. So we'll do all of Matthew chapter 18 uh, just within two sermons this morning. But as we, right before we begin, I want to give you a little bit of a heads up of sorts of how I approach these narratives. Um, so we've been going through the book of Matthew, and sometimes there are, you know, uh, there's an outline, you know, exactly what, you know, maybe outlines a passage pretty well and so forth. But a lot of times as I'm going into and I'm jumping into a narrative, and I'm, I'm wondering, okay, there's this story, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, he's interacting with the Pharisees or whoever he's talking to, what is my thought process? Really what I'm looking to do is a three-step formula. So I'm looking to tell you the story, right? I want you to know what the passage has to say. But then what I usually try to do is I try to boil it down to a theme, right? So we try to find the main theme or one of the main themes. And then we take that theme and we tie it to the gospel. Because everything always relates back to the gospel. So those, that's really a three-step process. So even if you're taking notes at all, that's, that's what we're going to be going through. We're going to be looking at the story. What does it have to say? What are maybe some of the harder parts of the passage that we need to deal with and understand? And then we find that main theme. We take that theme and we apply it to the gospel. So very simple, um, but hopefully effective as well. But Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to be reading the first 14 verses. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that by your spirit, as we always pray, that you will open it to our hearts and minds as we look at it together this morning. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'll cause us to tremble in light of it. And pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Larry Bird, Bobby Orr, Ted Williams, Tom Brady. Four names that are considered professional sports royalty, really not even only in New England, but in all of sports. 
You look at the statistics of these four men in particular in these four different sports over what they have done in their careers. It truly is remarkable. The, the records that they hold, the, the ability that they had to play the game that they played, the championships that some of them won, all of it from a human perspective really is remarkable. In fact, the nicknames that these four men have garnered over the course of their careers are, are pretty incredible as well. For instance, Larry Bird is known as Larry Legend. Bobby Orr has been called the fabulous number four, Bobby Orr. Ted Williams, of course, is known as the Splendid Splinter. And then you have Tom Brady, who is known as Tom Terrific. Legend, fabulous, splendid, terrific. What do all of these terms point to? They point to the greatness of these athletes. In our world today, we are consumed with greatness. We are consumed with watching people do these things with their bodies that you and I could just never, ever do. Isn't that even why the, the Olympics are so incredible? Right? You got Usain Bolt. I mean, he's like a lightning bolt just running down that track. Or Michael Phelps jumping into the pool and winning all those gold medals. It's unbelievable to watch athletes do what they do. And we spend a lot of our time questioning and wondering who is the GOAT? Right, an acronym for the greatest of all time. Who is the greatest of all time in terms of athletics? But it goes even far beyond athletics because really whatever you're interested in, there's a discussion as to who is the greatest of all time. Who's the greatest athlete? Who's the greatest musician? Who's the greatest author or actor or painter or seamstress or ice cream maker? Or who's the best whatever? There's a discussion as to who is the best at whatever it is. Who is the greatest. And it's interesting because as we look at our passage this morning, the disciples were having a discussion among themselves as to who was the greatest. But not a discussion in light of who was the greatest and the kind of things that we just talked about, who was the greatest athlete or musician or whoever. They were wondering who was the greatest among themselves. Look again in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is a question that they pose to the one who actually is the greatest. Okay, so kind of put that in a parentheses in your own mind. Kind of tuck it away in the back. They're asking the greatest one, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Luke's gospel tells us that this whole scene it actually bubbles out of an argument that these disciples were having. They were actually arguing among themselves, who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? God. Now, now we kind of step back a little bit and we think of a question like that asked to Jesus and we might think, who in the world are these pompous windbags, right? Where, where do they get off asking such a question? My dear wife has a, a little phrase that she has picked up along the way. Uh, she says pompous windbags a lot, but she's also picked up another phrase, might have been from a movie or something, but she at times will very sweetly use it with me when she thinks I'm being a pompous one bag. And she'll say, pull your lip over your head and swallow. <laughs> and this question... <laughs> you thought she was sweet, yeah. But this question that the disciples posed to Jesus makes me want to say that to them. Pull your lip over your head and swallow. Who in the world 
do you think you are to ask Jesus a question like this, right? There isn't an an ounce of humility in that question. There isn't an an ounce of humility in that whole conversation that they had had, this question that bubbled out, the argument that they were having about who was the greatest. As we've seen Jesus, even in the book of Matthew, Jesus hasn't even been elevating his own greatness. This kind of question isn't even on his radar in terms of himself. Jesus' main concern is, is really for the greatness and the, and the magnification of his Father. At one point in the book of Mark, he even says this, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So that was Jesus' whole point in coming. He came in order to serve, not to be served. You never see Jesus just kind of stand around and say, everybody gather at my feet and, and, and get me some food or get me some shade or get me whatever. He doesn't do that. He's not in it for his own greatness. His concern is with serving. Is this not even beautifully displayed when he goes and he gets on his hands and his knees and he takes the basin and the towel and he washes the feet of these arrogant, know-nothing disciples? And really... What this demonstrates again is that they don't understand the nature of the kingdom. They don't, they don't get it. But look at what he does upon hearing their question in verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you and I were in that interaction with these disciples and they were asking and arguing about who was the greatest, We'd probably want to jump in and light them right up. But Jesus hears the question, and he says, go get me a kid. Bring to me a child. Jesus is a master teacher. And as a master teacher, he uses good illustrations. He uses good visual aids. And in this teaching moment, he decides to use a child. And so he takes a child. And the Greek word here for child actually is reference to a little child or even an infant. So the child is probably around that toddler, two to four age. And he takes his child and he sets him or her before the 12 disciples. And you can imagine Jesus, right? I mean, what a sweet disposition that our Lord must have had. And he takes his child and he presents him in front of all of these men, all of these disciples. And Jesus doesn't ask the child to speak. He doesn't ask him to do anything but to stand there. And then Jesus begins to speak. He grabs that child, puts him there, and then he begins to say these kind of almost like if-then kind of questions or cause-and-effect kinds of statements. Look at verse 3. He says, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, they're the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Or verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name, he receives me. And then whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the sea. And so you notice what is connecting all of these statements that Jesus gives in these few verses. It's the illustration. It's the child. Jesus is telling the disciples that in order to be true converts, in order to demonstrate that you have truly turned and that you belong to the kingdom of God, is you must become like this child. Well, how do you become like a child? We're adults here. We've sent all the children away and put them downstairs. But how do you become like a child? It kind of reminds me of of John chapter 3. when Jesus is having this discussion with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, right? 
And he has this interaction and Nicodemus comes to him by night and this conversation about being born again comes up, right? And so Nicodemus, he's not quite understanding where Jesus is going with the whole born again concept. And so he says, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to enter into my mother's womb a second time and then be born again? And so, of course, Jesus says, no, it's a matter of being born by the Spirit. But how do we become a child again? How do we reverse and reverse those years and take them off us and become a child? Well, of course, he's talking about becoming a spiritual child. That you humble yourself. So how do you become great in regard to the kingdom of God? You humble yourself. How do you become a child? You humble yourself. As Charles Spurgeon once said, to rise to the greatness of grace, we must go down to the littleness, the simplicity, and the trustfulness of a child. Last week, a lot of you got to meet uh, John Reed, who was here, and he was presenting his fostering ministry. And on the Saturday night, Bethany and I had the opportunity to have supper with John and his son Isaac. And we were talking about the development of children and how, how they develop and, and what exactly is happening, even specifically in the first year. And he made mention that it's something like 100,000 times in the first year of a child's life that, that, they, that they call on a parent to do something. They need a diaper. They need food. They need sleep. They're uncomfortable. 100,000 times within those first 365 days. And during the course of that 100,000 times, what is going on between the father and the mother and the child is that trust is beginning to develop. The child can't do these things on on their own. They are totally dependent upon the parent to come through 100,000 times in that first year. And so it is for those who would be a part of the kingdom of God. That the Christian, that we humble ourselves before God like a child, calling out to God, receiving all the care and all the security that we need from God alone. Why is it imperative for us to humble ourselves like a child? Because your temptation and my temptation are to be adults. Adults are self-sufficient. Adults don't need other people. Adults can do everything that they need for themselves. They can provide protection. They can provide food. They can do everything that they need for themselves. But what is a child? They are a, de- a dependent. Isn't that something? That Jesus is not here in our passage on earth looking for a bunch of self-sufficient disciples. He's looking for disciples who would be fully dependent upon him. One poet says this, Make me, O Lord, a child again, obedient to thy call, in self-possessing nothing, and in thee possessing all. Jesus isn't interested in a bunch of disciples who can do it themselves. He's interested in disciples who are fully and humbly dependent on him. Not only is he interested in humble disciples who are as little children, but he is also interested in those who would protect themselves and others from temptation. Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
You may, may recall very similar verses from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, of course, as the itinerant preacher, he's going all over the place to all these different towns preaching the same message over and over, which is good for us as readers of the New Testament because we need these lessons over and over again. But see that he says that it is necessary for temptations to come into our lives, but woe to whom it comes. You, you and I are going to be attacked all the time by temptations. Christ himself was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. But the question is, what do you do when that temptation comes? Right? Do, do you fall prey to that temptation? Are your inner desires enticed? And does your temptation, does that temptation that has come to you, does it give birth to sin? Consider with me even the context of this passage as we look at verse 7 and following. When we consider temptation in light of our own pride, how often do we want to be seen as great? Right? If you can forgive another sports analogy, what causes the athlete to come out of retirement after a great career and come back into the game and start playing again? I have to imagine it has something to do with with 100,000 people chanting your name. Or seeing your name and your stats in the newspaper. Or seeing your face on ESPN. Or all of that. And we are no different. That we, although the scale might be a little bit different. We are greatly tempted. And we battle to be humble. May I even say that as as leaders of the church. Those who would be leaders, elders or deacons within a church. That the temptation to be seen as great is massively tempting. But how does Jesus say to handle the temptation? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? Because it is so much better to enter into eternal life, into heaven, without a hand or without a foot, than to enter into hell with a full body. Jesus is all about using strong language here with his disciples and us to ensure that we're not missing the point. So if you cause a little one, a little disciple, one of his own, to sin, it would be so much better for you to drown with a millstone hanging around your neck. So for you not to even live a, a moment longer, but to sink to the bottom of the sea and to die as soon as possible. That is what is strongly preferable than you to cause a disciple to sin. But if you yourself, if you're tempted by your hand or foot, it is so much much better that you cut it off and that you deal with your sin seriously. Why? So that you can have eternal life. So that you can enter into heaven although you may be physically not whole but spiritually you are. And I remind you that he's saying all of this using all this strong language with a kid standing right in front of him. You mess with a disciple of mine represented by this little one it would be better for you to drown. You mess with sin it would be better for you to cut off your hand or foot than to go into hell with sin festering in your bones. Jesus, again, is using strong language here to get across his point. He's using the imagery of cutting off your hand to show you how serious it is, how serious sin is. Jesus wants us to to cut away sin from us, to, to, to push it away, to push away anything that would cause us to be tempted. Matthew Henry comments, we must think nothing too dear to part with for the keeping of a good conscience. What are you holding on to this morning that has seared your conscience? Friends, if practically speaking, if looking at pornography on your smartphone or laptop is a consistent temptation for you, it may be time to cut the smartphone and the laptop out of your life. If your job is causing you to neglect your family, it may be time for a new job. 
If money is the all-consuming passion of your life, it may be time to change career paths and to start giving it away. If your circle of Christian friends even is consistently causing you to fall into the sin of gossip and slander, it's probably time for new friends. Practically speaking, what is it in your own life that is causing you to be tempted, that is causing you even to sin? We must identify what those things are and cut them out of our lives. Now, we need to realize that just because you might cut a computer out of your life, just because you might cut a friend out of your life, or maybe one of you come in with a hand chopped off next week as you come into the service, that doesn't mean that you aren't going to still struggle with sin. That doesn't mean that you are going to just automatically stop sinning. But it does mean that you are serious about your sin and you are serious about dealing with it. That is the whole point. That you're so serious that even cutting off your hand is a better thing than to sin. Cutting things out of your life, it might sound harsh, severe, and radical, but far better for you, just like Jesus says here, to enter into life with one eye, with one hand, or one foot, than to enter into the eternal fire. The Christian who has cut off his proverbial hand or foot is a delight to see. They're a delight to be around because they are consistently looking over their life to see what they can cut out. They're willing to put away the, the things that would cause them to be tempted. They are concerned about their holiness. And a Christian who is concerned about their holiness and consistently cutting sins and offenses and temptations away from themselves is a humble person. This is the kind of person that does belong to the kingdom of God. A Christian who, keep, to keep with the illustration, is hobbling around on one foot and has one hand. They're not a proud person because they see their deficiencies. They know that they cannot enter into the kingdom of God of their own accord. They know that they need God alone. Are you the kind of Christian that takes sin so seriously that you are willing to just cut that temptation away? You're willing to cut that sin away? That even for the sake of other disciples, that you're willing to help them in their cutting away of their temptations? Far better to be serious now and to go against that cultural grain and to go against even the grain of maybe some of our Christian friends, but still enter into the kingdom of God. Notice again verse 12. Jesus then illustrates all this with a brief parable. He says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, one of these little disciples, should perish. Jesus' concern remains on these little ones. It remains on these disciples. It is not the will of the Father that any of them should perish. He, he rejoices over that one who has gone astray and is brought back into the fold. He loves his humble disciples. And it is to humble disciples that the kingdom of God genuinely belongs. But friends, and in, in light of thinking about the theme here and, and the humility, if you and I are honest with yourselves, we all struggle with Humility. We, we might not be like these disciples and, and sit around and Sunday after church and discuss and argue who's the greatest, right? Who, who's greater than this person or that person. But we are often lobbying for our own greatness where maybe even what we do is motivated out of a sense of our own greatness. 
where we do certain things within the church context to look good, or we serve in areas we serve, not because we're humble, but because we're actually proud. Over and over, the Bible presents us with verses on humility and examples of humble people, or examples of how God humbled people. And I think that the prevailing theme in our passage is just that. It's humility. It it connects the whole passage. It, It begins with the arrogance of the disciples, speaking of who was the greatest among them. And then the little humble child is used to demonstrate that in order to be great in the kingdom of God, you need to humble yourself. Don't you see how, how the, the, ethos of or how to live within the kingdom of God is different than how the world views living. So everything is totally flipped upside down when you consider how things are in the world. So in order to be great in the world, what do you need to do? You, you need to make something of yourself. You need to, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be a big shot and be big and fast or know a lot or be the best. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what do you do? You humble yourself. You're humble, like a little child. But you know, Jesus really isn't preaching anything new here. God has always desired humility among his people. And when you stand, we sing about all these things, and oftentimes I wonder where the disconnect is, because a lot of times it's very easy to, to sing a song like we originally sang, indescribable, uncontainable, and we sing all of these great things about who God is. But there's there's a disconnect. And, and where is that is often the question because if he really is all of those things, then wouldn't we be incredibly humble? That when we think about the majesty and the glory and the holiness and the sovereignty of God, how could we possibly be arrogant? Think about this verse with me. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2 speaks of the disposition of God toward the humble. He says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. One author said this about this verse, Humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. That's shocking. This is the one that I will look at I will look at the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at my word. You want God to look at you? Be humble. You want to catch his attention? Be humble. James chapter 4 verse 10 says this. Another way in which God uh, treats those who are humble says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's God's disposition toward the humble. You want to catch God's attention? Be humble. Will be lifted up, be great in the kingdom of God, be genuinely humble. Do you have that real sense of who you are in relation to Him? So, indescribable, uncontainable, do you know who you are in relationship to those terms that we are dust in comparison to His all powerful, sovereign self? But in contrast to this, what is God's disposition toward the proud? If His disposition toward the humble catches His eye, what is his disposition toward the arrogant? says this in James 4, God opposes the proud. So you want to be in opposition to God? Be proud. It didn't work for Satan and his demons, and it won't work for us. To be proud is to stand in opposition of God himself, but to be humble is to draw his gaze and to be lifted up. 
great people humble themselves and they serve. Even within the context of, of the church. How, how would it look if, if all of us were humbly serving and caring for one another? Romans chapter 12 says this, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Matthew 23 says, The greatest among you will be your servant. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, what do you do? You consider others better than yourself. Matthew 23, 12. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Friends, Jesus is not telling us in the context of our church, in the context of our own individual lives, with our families, whatever. He's not telling us to do something that He Himself has not done. He's telling us. He wants us to be humble. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you must be humble. But Jesus himself is the greatest example example of humility. You think of that great passage in Philippians 2 where it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. You see, humility is best displayed for us in the gospel, where Jesus emptied himself, that he laid aside the fact that he was God, he became man, and he humbled himself to a Roman cross. Scourged, spat on, slapped, crown of thorns in his head, pierced through his hands and feet. Friends, how can we be arrogant when we stand next to the foot of the cross where the Prince of Glory was slain. So may God help us to, as individuals, as a congregation, to be humble, humble like children who are serving one another and God in humility, all the while catching the gaze of our sovereign God and being lifted up. Lord, thank you for your word. We pray that you'll humble us. We struggle with this, Lord, and we realize that this pride is a deadly sin and you hate it and you oppose those who are proud. Lord, humble us and we are often a bit nervous to ask to be humbled, but we know that we, it would be far better to be humbled, to cut off our hand and foot, gouge out an eye, and to enter into the kingdom spiritually whole than to enter into hell whole physically. God help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me?